Welcome to the Seedcast, brought to you by Armor Seed. I want to welcome everyone to the Seedcast today. With us, we have Rick Crawford, U.S. Congressman. He's been Congressman for the 1st District for five terms, and he currently sits on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Intelligence Committee, and the one that's the most important to the 1st District, the Agricultural Committee. Rick, welcome to the Seedcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. You bet. So we want to start with a little bit of background today. Um, Rick and I have known each other for quite a few yeah. years, probably. I don't know how long, a long time. Yep. And, and uh, so I, I know Rick really well, and so we're hoping that this is a, uh, a little bit more of a personal, mm-hmm. um, want to get to know Rick Crawford sure. kind of talk. We, we will talk some politics, obviously. We have to, <laughs> right? And, but uh, anyway, I know you grew up in a military family. Yep. Uh, which typically means a lot of moving. Yeah, a lot. A lot. So how'd you get to Arkansas? Well, it's kind of a, um, a w- I came here to go to Arkansas State, but my family is from Kennett, Missouri. My my granddad was actually born in Leechville, and they moved over to Kennett to farm. And my dad grew up, they were cotton farmers primarily. Uh, my dad grew up and he said he wanted to go to Arkansas State University and, you know, as cotton farmers back in the day didn't have a lot of money, so he joined the military to get college money. Well, he ended up staying 24 years. And in the course of that 24 years, three kids, so I've got two older brothers, and, you know, we always kind of came home to Kennett. That was home base. And, and um, so when I went into the Army myself, served in the Army four years, got some college money. And when I came back home, I started going to school at Arkansas State. So that was back in 1989, so quite a while ago. And basically have just been here ever since. But, you know, the family roots go back here quite a ways. Um you know, when my, my if my dad was deployed somewhere, you know, my mom would come to Kennett and stay with the folks. And so this is a kind of interesting story. So I was born in Florida. Well, she was when she was pregnant with me, she was staying in Kennett with my grandparents. And my dad was I don't know, he wasn't he might have been in Vietnam at the time. I don't remember. But um, he came home and t- went back to where he was stationed, took the family back there to Florida. And two weeks later, I was born. So my uncle was taking my mom once a week to the doctor at Blyville Air Force Base. And so it's it's funny that, you know, even though I wasn't born here, I have, you know, strong roots here in in, in uh, northeast Arkansas, southeast Missouri, and um, the little town of Boynton, Arkansas, which very few people know where that is. But if you go over to Leachville, they know where Boynton is because it's a wide spot in the road over there next to Leachville. And uh, I asked uh, Ronnie Kennett one time years ago, do you know where Boynton is? He said, yeah, my my parents used to run the grocery store in Boynton. Well, that was where my granddad was born. So um, it goes back to to the grandparents, but skipped a generation with me because my dad went into the military and we served. Uh, I served myself. He served for 24 years all over the country, all over the world. But one of the things that my dad instilled in me was a love for agriculture. You know, having been raised on a farm, cotton farmers back in the day, they all they kept uh, hogs and cattle and things like that. So he was big in FFA and showed hogs and, um, you know, pick cotton the old-fashioned way. And I used to hear about it all the time. You know, when I was your age, I was dragging a pick sack, you know. So, but anyway, that's that's where the, the, the ag roots come from. And I've always loved it. And I just kind of always wanted to work in the agriculture space. So how did growing up in a military family influence just your life in general. And then after that, how did that kind of influence your political life? Because I kind of know that story, so I think Mm -hmm. people would be interested in that. Well, I think this, I have to attribute this to sort of my dad's upbringing in that, you know, 
being raised on a farm, get up early, stay up late. I mean, you work all day, uh, first first to first to, to show up, the last to leave. You know, with strong work ethic, things like that. That were that was instilled in us, me and my brothers, when we were little. I, I, there's not a time in my life that I can't recall even on the Air Force base somewhere, trying to go out and earn a living, whether that was pulling weeds somewhere, mowing grass, delivering papers or whatever. And that's something that my dad just required of us, uh, not not just our chores around the house, but to go out and, and earn our money and, and try to create some value for ourselves. And so that was something that was instilled. But I think where the, the real um, experience came is when he was stationed in New Mexico and he had the opportunity to buy a little ranch out west of Albuquerque where he was stationed. And then we got to really get into, you know, the ag lifestyle. It is raising cattle. And I worked on ranches out there. And um, for better or worse, that's where I started my rodeo career, unfortunately, um, which if I'd have been any good at it, I probably wouldn't be any Congress. But um, so, I mean, that's where I kind of really kind of fell in love with agriculture. I had a lot of experience working with cattle. Um Went into the army myself and just wanted to come back and get involved in it. And um, my dad had retired, obviously retired to Kennett, and he and my mom were living there. When I got out of the army, I'd, I'd always come home for Christmas or whatever to Kennett, and we'd come to Jonesboro because that's what you do when you live in Kennett. And I just stayed. So I've been here um, now 30 years. Went to school at Arkansas State. Got my ag degree, rodeoed a little in college, and enough to get hurt bad enough to have to find a real job, and um, you know, kind of found a way to marry the communication side with the ag side, which is how you and I got acquainted. Correct. Um, I love agriculture, but I, I really like the the marketing and communication side. is a lot of fun, and um, kind of learning how to communicate with farmers in a way that I mean, farmers have their own language. And uh, learning how to speak that language and really kind of bridge the gap between farmers and consumers, that's been fun. It's been challenging, and I've enjoyed it. Your political career influenced by your parents, I know. Mm -hmm. uh, just me knowing you, I know your love for service. Mm -hmm. So speak a little bit about that. How, how, how did your mom and dad influence your political career? Um, my dad had a um, – I tell this story a lot, and probably you've heard me say it probably and get sick of it, but I'll tell it again. And I can remember real distinctly because – I was probably in about the fifth or sixth grade. We were moving out of a particular house and moving on to the next base. And the movers came, cleared all of our furniture out. That's And, and then my mom and my dad walk in there and buckets and mops and paper towels and said, okay, now let's clean this thing up. And I said, Dad, we're not living here anymore. He said, well, we're not, but we're leaving it cleaner than we found it. And that... I can hear him saying it to this day. I remember it. And my mom and my dad and we all had pitched in and we cleaned that house and we did it. That's just how we did it. That's probably one of the most vivid memories I have of a sort of, and I tell my kids this all the time. You may not remember this when you're 21, but you'll remember it when you're 31 and 41. And that those are the little life lessons you pick up on as a child that stay with you. That has stayed with me. So you, you take that and you broaden that out a little bit. Are we leaving it better than we found it? And there's certain things that sort of compel you to try and and get involved and do things for the next generation, for the next occupants of this house. I want to leave it cleaner than I found it. And, and I'm in the process of trying to clean it up, metaphorically speaking, in some cases literally, 
But um, I'm hoping, if nothing else, like my parents did, is modeling good behavior, getting involved, having respect for your fellow man, leaving it cleaner than you found it, and and uh, and recognizing the need to serve, you know, your fellow man. We're given, we're so blessed in this country, and that sounds, you know, kind of trite and hackneyed, but. I get the chance to travel all over the world, have done most of my life, and I can tell you there is no place like home. They're just this is just we are so blessed with such an abundance of freedom and resources that other countries can't even imagine. And I just we need to take care of it. We we do. I I, I say this, I've I've been out of the country multiple times. If you want to appreciate the United States, just travel outside the United States. Mm-hmm. And you'll have an appreciation when you come back for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people probably would find this interesting. They don't probably know this. You started your career in rodeo, but mm-hmm. also rodeo announcing. Yeah, uh, I, I, there's not very many people that I <laughs> that I know who know that, right? Yeah. Uh, and then kind of got into agricultural reporting and broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Owned your own broadcasting company. Uh, tell us. And I think at one point, weren't you the farm director for? The local mm-hmm. uh, K yeah. I believe yeah. local. Yeah. I think that's where we that's actually where, yeah. got to know each other there mm-hmm. pretty well. Uh, how's how's your private industry uh, experience influenced your political career? Uh, two ways. Okay, first off, as you mentioned, I was kind of in the communications industry. So being a rodeo announcer makes you sort of, as I said, if I'd have been a good bronc rider, I probably wouldn't have been a rodeo announcer. But I wasn't that good a bronc rider and, and transitioned into that because I just love the sport. So you become the face of the rodeo. You're the PR guy. You're the front man. And so when something goes wrong, you're the guy out there explaining what went wrong. And, and you're doing pre-promotional stuff to get people to come to the rodeo. You're doing the interviews after the fact to you know, kind of explain what happened and things like this. So very out front. And that's not the easiest industry, and, and particularly in certain – I've been in rodeos in, in New York. Uh, they don't have the same perspective we have here, um, you know, places like Minnesota and so on, where you've got to have – you've got to be wearing your PR hat all the time and be careful about what you say, how you say it, and how this whole topic is presented. Well, I did that for a long, long time, and I thought this is the only thing I can do because I didn't realize how readily those skills transfer to other industries, and particularly agriculture. But I found that they do very readily. And then just um, on, a, on a lark, someone said, hey, you know what? You need to go out to KAIT because they're looking for a morning anchor. And I said, oh, okay. So I went out there, applied for the job. They said, can you read for us? I said, yeah. Gave me some stories. I read it. And they hired me on the spot. It was two things, I'm convinced. One was because I could read, you know, coherently. And two is that I had an ag background, had a degree in agriculture. And that what they really wanted, I think, was they wanted the somebody to go out and do ag reporting. And that's what I did. So I would do the morning show the, and the midday show, and then I would go out and do two or three ag news packages a week to provide that to the, to the, to the news. And so that's kind of how I got launched in ag communications here. Eventually went to work on, on KFINE, uh, was their farm director. Um, I kind of transitioned with James Guthrie, you know, as he was finishing his career, I was kind of coming in there and he and I got to be pretty good buddies, uh, you know, and, and um, then um, just kind of went out on my own, worked in, the, in, in on the marketing side, worked in the equipment business um, for a good while and went out on my own and started the, the uh, my own communications company and radio network. That's when I learned, okay, so now I know how to communicate. This is when I really started to see 
the policy challenges that business owners face. Obviously, talking to farmers all the time, what they're faced with, but just as now a guy that's responsible for signing the front side of the paycheck, now I've got a different set of responsibilities. And that changed my perspective a whole bunch and got me a little more involved on the policy side. You know, how do we do things to improve um, life for not just farmers, but folks in rural America who are struggling because of poorly crafted policy, you know, or, or laws that are designed to govern from a very major metropolitan perspective, but sort of leave out the rural component. And that's been one of the biggest challenges, bridging the gap between urban and rural. And and really those two things probably, learning to communicate and recognizing the, the challenges from a regulatory standpoint that farmers in particular, but rural America, broadly speaking, that they have. And that's kind of what, what motivated me. I figure you're like most, maybe didn't think about a career in politics no. early. What what made that decision? I mean, how did you get to that point where you thought, you know, I'm willing to take all this, uh, all the stuff that comes along, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a minute, comes along with politics. How did you get to that place? Um, it's there, you know, probably everybody at some point in time has kind of a put up or shut up moment, you know. And um, I can remember in uh, 2006, um, our current governor Asa Hutchinson approached me about advising him on his on his. Uh, gubernatorial campaign in 2006. Yeah, sure. Tried to help him out on that. We weren't, on that particular effort, we weren't successful, but that opened some doors and he called me a couple years later and said, hey, I'm going to an event. I need you to speak on ag policy. Okay. Well, that night at this event, it was down in Poinsett County, somebody asked me if I'd ever consider running for Congress. I'm like, no. <laughs> You gotta be kidding me. And then I kept getting more requests for speaking engagements. Then I was contacted by the McCain campaign. We need some surrogates to go and represent the McCain campaign, which also was not successful. So I'm I'm not batting a thousand here at this point on the political side. But um I would go out and I did three or four uh events where I was actually debating and I kind of thought, I, I think the Republican Party of Arkansas is trying to get me to do something here. It, I, I didn't at that time. I didn't realize it. And I, in hindsight, I'm going, yeah, they're seeing if I can think on my feet. If I if I'm somebody, they can, you know. And eventually, that's what happened. It was kind of like you're either going to do this or you're not. I was approached about it. Um, went home, talked to my wife about it, prayed about it, talked to some close friends about it, and. Just made the decision that you know you can sit back and watch life go by, or you can go get involved, and that was kind of one of those moments when I said, "Okay, I'm going to go get involved." That kind of leads me to one of my questions I had. You know, it seems politics has gotten to the point where it's it's just difficult to get people involved. Mm-hmm. You know, what what would you tell people the reason that uh, to get involved, and then it's two parter. But can you can you maybe speak to some folks who and encourage them on getting into mm-hmm. politics or getting involved? What what would you say to encourage them to do that? Well, I will say this. One of my observations is that you can't wait till you're, you know, after 40. Because if you're you're 25, you're, you're impacted by policy. So you don't talk necessarily about policy and politics being interchangeable. They're not the same thing. 
policy is different completely than politics, but you bring a political perspective to the table when you're engaging in policy debate. And that's fine. Everybody has their own political views. But don't wait around till you're 40 because by the time you're 40, that's when you start seeing the real impact to you personally of policy decisions, good or bad, because you're at a point in your career and at, at the stage in your life, typically, you know, you've got some kids, you're starting to recognize, well, my goodness, where are my tax dollars going? How are they being spent? You start to change your perspective a little bit. I'd say get get involved earlier than 40. And, and a lot of people think that, well, I don't have that much to offer because, you know, I'm only 25. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean you necessarily need to go out and run for office at age 25, but go get involved and see what's being done. Play a role, you know, volunteer on a campaign. Do something to get a better perspective of how this is impacting your life. And then if you don't want to do that, be very careful and discerning in how you how you consume media. So if, if you're not going to play a role in, in developing policy, if you're not going to be involved in a political campaign, if you're not going to run for an office, and that's not for everybody – um, necessarily because people, some people just don't like it, and that's totally understandable. But but I think everybody needs to understand basic civics, and everybody needs to be a very discerning consumer of media. So don't get locked into one source and, and, and exclude everything else. It's important to use three or four or five sources and kind of triangulate around the commonalities in a given topic because you'll find a kernel of truth in there that you can say, if all five are saying this, that piece must be right. But everything else may be editorial in nature. And so you're being sort of, you know, influenced whether you know it or not, and we tend to respond that way. So broaden your scope a little bit. Consume media from sources you don't necessarily agree with. And then compare how those stories are treated and find the kernels of truth that exist in there based on kind of a triangulation model. I think something you said there, actually getting involved mm-hmm. and researching is well, something that we've lost. And, and you know, I, I was on a local school board years ago, and I found that what people in the community thought was going on was not even close to mm-hmm. what was really going on. Right. Me, me even that way before I ran. Sure. And so getting involved, I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think when, when you get involved with something, you learn more about mm-hmm. it. And you have a tendency not to criticize it as much. Well, it's like this. You know, we know this working in the ag industry. If you eat, you're involved in agriculture. Well, if you live in the United States, you're involved in policy. In some, you're in that chain somewhere. You're, you're, you're on the receiving end, if nothing else, and you're, you're affected by it. So getting involved, even in understanding what people are talking about, even in reading, it's taking a few minutes a day to um, to listen to the seed cast, for example, take a few minutes a day to listen to some things that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily listen to. You know, for ag uh, folks, it's this is an easy thing to listen to. For folks who are not agricultural, listen to it because you get a different perspective and you kind of get maybe a, a little bit of a different uh, view and think, well, this is what farmers are up against. That that helps you to understand that as a consumer. And I would say to farmers, do the same thing. You know, find some things that you're not comfortable with necessarily and read it. You know, take a little extra time to broaden your scope. It's it's amazing to me that probably the most understood occupation early in this century or past century is now the least understood. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, back, back in the day, as you say, 30s and 1930s, 40s, 50s, 
every person knew about farming. Mm-hmm. Now it's rare. I mean, yep. if we go to church with people that, that just don't understand, it's not because they don't want to. It's it, We've made it so easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just so easy on the food side that people kind of take it for granted. I don't want to pick on people, but they kind of take the food for well, granted. They do. And I wish that I had, I was in Cuba, oh, it's been a few months back. I wish I had been allowed to take a picture in a grocery store in Cuba and then compare that to any grocery store in the United States, any grocery store in Jonesboro, and you would your jaw would drop. And that's the best store in town. I said, take me to the best grocery store in Havana. I would I would not feed my dog in that store. And and they were flocking to this store and there was nothing on the shelves and you know meat scarce. You know, that kind of, I'm telling you, we've got it good in this country, and we, we don't realize how good we have it or who provides that bounty, you know. Um, so it's easy to sort of malign farmers because, you know, you have this simple view that milk comes out of a bottle, you know, or that your beans come out of a bag or a can or your rice comes out of a bag. But how to get there, we don't think about that. That's just the culture we live in. I mentioned my grandparents. And and my my granddad they they farmed and I'm sure yours did too and this is the way most people around here farmed back in the day was cotton was their cash crop they grew corn to feed their mules they grew corn to feed their cattle and hogs they grew some soybeans and grandma kept a garden and they fed the family that's subsistence farming the cash crop was cotton but they grew their own food they raised their own uh, livestock um, mules you you know and that was it and the, and the, and more and more people were involved in agriculture then, but as we got good at it, we kind of become victims of our own success. U.S. farmers are so proficient and, and that we can't even begin to imagine how less than 2% of the population can feed well over 350 million people and beyond. It's staggering, and yet we do it and very little said about it. It's uh, interesting. I, I was listening to a podcast one day this week about how the supermarket was brought about and how farmers were so involved in that. It was back in the Cold War, back in the 50s, because uh, politically we wanted the other countries to think we were superior to them mm-hmm. in agriculture. Today, that's almost seems to be taboo. Right. right? We, if we're superior to someone in agriculture, that's not seen as a as such a good thing. But it worked out really well for us well, when we were using it for it that. does and you use this the, the term superior and i think one of the things that we from a, from a technical standpoint agriculturally speaking that's true one of the things that we talk about and this has been sort of a, a word that has some people don't like it and that is american exceptionalism so we are exceptional and here's why we're exceptional not because we're better than anybody i'm not suggesting that we're better but we're exceptional because what does exception mean? I mean, we are an exception to the rule, and that is we are really one of the youngest, if not the youngest country on the planet, but we have the oldest governing doctrine, our document. Over 200 years of this governing document that's worked so well for a self-governing people, that's what sets us apart. That's what makes us exceptional. doesn't make us better, but we're exceptional because we're exception to the rule that we've sustained our our model of governance so many generations, so many decades, now spanning centuries, and still young by comparison. That's exceptional. And so there's some things we're doing right here. 
but it doesn't mean it's going to be that way forever. So it's the same thing with with agriculture. We have become so good at it that we get complacent in it and we don't appreciate it. And so we don't appreciate the fact that our farmers are so proficient. So and the technology, as you know, and anybody that's listening to this, well, heck, we're on a podcast for crying out loud. The technology advances at an exponential rate now compared to when John Deere rolled out the, his first plow. We were speaking offline a little earlier about your committees. Mm-hmm. Uh, give us a little update on the Agricultural Committee. I know you got something you want to speak about there. Yeah, the Ag Committee, uh, a lot of people go to Congress because they want to get on a big A committee. I went to Congress, and I campaigned on getting on the Ag Committee. So I was up there in, in uh, 2010, and I met with who would be our speaker. He was the, the minority leader, John Boehner, and I said, um, it'd be real helpful if I could get advanced sort of placement on the Ag Committee. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I represent a real agricultural district. I've worked in the Ag industry for years. I want to be on the Ag Committee. Can you make a statement to that effect that if I'm elected, I'll be placed on the Ag Committee? He goes, what? I said, yeah. He said, you seriously want me to make a statement like that? And I said, yeah. He says, so Ag's pretty important to your district. I said, yeah, it's that important. So he did it. So I didn't go to the to Congress to not get on the Ag Committee. I went on to be, first and foremost, that was my priority, get on the Ag Committee. So now, uh, nine years later, eight years later, eight and a half, whatever, um, I'm fairly senior. I've served as a subcommittee chair uh, three of the last four Congresses, and I'm now in a position to run for Ag Committee chair. So that is going to be an open seat coming up in the next Congress. I've already started. The wheels are turning now. Um, and so I'm getting a lot of support here at home for that because folks here recognize how important that is to Arkansas specifically, but to Mid-South and Southern agriculture in general. And I can tell you that having a counterbalance to a very Midwestern flavor in ag policy is critical for us. So I've got a good coalition of support from, from Virginia to Texas and, uh, I think we're going to, you know, have a really good shot at getting that Ag Committee chair. Well, we certainly hope you, you get that position for sure. <laughs> be good for us, it yeah. It would be. So uh, talk just a little bit of politics here. We really hadn't touched on it much, but I know there's a couple things for our listeners that are top of mind. Number one is the tariffs. Mm-hmm. Would you mind speak to that just a little? I, you know, I, I know it's probably been overspoken some, but no, but I, I know you have a great perspective on that. So I, why don't I you share it, that with uh, our listeners? A lot. I get this question everywhere I go, and I think it's important to note one thing, and I— I try to approach people f- more from a, you know, public servant policy perspective than a political perspective. So let's take away whether or not you like the president, because there are some strong opinions. There's no middle of the road opinions on that. But I think you have to acknowledge the one thing that has happened is that China has been exposed for the terrible policies and practices they engage in with regard to trade which is part and parcel of their overall behavior with regard to um, political and and military behavior. Um, What we need to understand here in the United States is that China is not our friend. They're not engaging with us in a way that is mutually beneficial. They're doing everything they can to get the upper hand. They want to supplant the United States as the preeminent military, the preeminent economic, the preeminent political factor in the world. They've, they've stated as much. If you're not familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative, I would encourage you to Google that and read up on it as much as you can. 
It's basically the reconstitution of the Silk Road. All roads lead to China. It, uh, they have their stated goal of 20, 2025, made in China. They want everything made in China by 2025. Well, heck, it's 2019. That's right around the corner. They are long-term strategic thinkers. We are – our long-term strategic planning generally spans five years. Theirs spans 50 to 100 years. We're not engaging with a traditional adversary. We are engaging with a long-term strategic enemy. And I don't, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but what I'm saying is that for a variety of reasons, we have to retool the way we think, the way we engage in the global uh, marketplace. And that is going to start with farmers. I'm encouraged on what I'm seeing here in the Delta. And I'll give you one example, and that is the, the peanut acres that are expanding and the resulting infrastructure that's here to, to meet that. That's good. So we've got Delta Peanut coming online in the first quarter, hopefully next year. We're seeing more buying points go in, and, and the access to the marketing opportunities with peanuts is going to enhance what we're doing here. Not to mention the fact, as you know, it's just kind of a good agronomic uh, mix and a good thing to include to diversify your portfolio and your crop mix. So that's good. We need to expand that. We need to think about how do we create value? How do we, you know, sort of create a vertical integration model that gives us the opportunity to change the market dynamics with regard to U.S. commodities. So uh, another example with with the tariffs. Um, How long have we heard that China was going to buy U.S. rice? 20, 25 years? We have yet to sell the first grain of rice to China. And and I'll get – rice farmers will call me up, hey, did you hear the news? We're talking about selling rice to China. Yep, heard about that. I'll get excited and I'll pop the cork whenever we start offloading a ship in Shanghai. Until such time, I'm going to be very skeptical on that because of the, it's like it's like uh, you know Lucy and the football with with Charlie. They just keep moving the ball, and we run up there and you know fall flat on our face. You know, so at some point in time, we have to recognize we're not dealing with honest brokers. So what do we do about that? I think we need to take this opportunity to shore up our relationships in the Pacific Rim, particularly with nations like Vietnam, um, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, India, and others. And I think we need to relegate China to a retail market. It's going to cost us a little bit. It'll cost us less than a 25% tariff. We'll take a little discount because we're going to wholesale to those other markets. But China's demand picture is relatively inelastic. They're going to have to have a certain amount of commodities just to meet their own domestic. They are, they are a nation that can't feed themselves. That presents them a strategic and economic vulnerability. Um, so they're going to have to rely on us whether they like it or not. We've already seen the evidence of that. Last year, as this stuff was starting to really bubble up, Mexico bought a bunch of soybeans for the purpose of shipping it to China. Um, it's it's kind of like squeezing a balloon. You squeeze it here, it pops up over here, or whatever that kind of thing. Well, that's sort of what's happening. You know, these commodities are fungible in the global marketplace. They're going to buy at different times. Obviously, Brazil, Argentina, number one and two, depending on the year, or consistently number three. Um, but we're in the top three in soybean exports. It's important to us. So we need to start to hammer out these these relationships and and really firm those up with the Pacific Rim nations. It starts with recognizing the president's – whether we like him or not, he's got to have his complete complement of trade staff confirmed. He needs to have a, a, a USTR staff 
that can engage concurrently in bilateral negotiations with all of those nations, and there has to be an ambassador in each of those countries. It can't be a charge a, you know, charge to fair like we have in Cuba. It can't be a deputy chief of the mission while we're waiting for or an acting ambassador because the countries find that as an insult. And if we don't have the kind of relationship that we have a formal ambassador that's serving the United States, representing the United States, then we don't have that key interlocutor to really access those markets and set up the negotiations we need for trade. A lot of moving parts there, but it comes down to this. This had to happen. This seismic shift with China had to happen for our own long-term good and for the sustainability of our own ag sector. It's very well put. I appreciate you addressing that because I know it's not an easy topic. It's not easy, it's not and easy. it's painful, and, and, some, and we've seen the evidence of it. But it was, it's absolutely essential that we have to change the dynamic that the, the current situation with China is not going to work for us in the long term. Rick, you're a five-term congressman. What have you learned in those five terms that you enjoy about politics? I enjoy getting out and seeing people. I enjoy, and particularly different times of the year, uh, driving through the district, looking at the different stages where the you know we're getting close to harvest. I'm hearing you know get a guy calls up, hey, I cut my first load of rice. I enjoy hearing that. I enjoy going out and seeing it. I enjoy going and walking through fields. I enjoy watching the you know seeing the different stages of crop development. And then I also enjoy leaving the Delta and going up into the Ozarks and seeing the stark contrast that exists in this district of 30 counties and the, the different cultural dynamics that exist in this district. I like getting out and meeting people. I love agriculture. I love small towns. We have a lot of them. And I just enjoy that interaction. It's fun. I like different perspectives and people throwing different ideas out there. I love that, that we're, they're, they're starting to be really responsive. Communities are starting to be really responsive to the idea of what we call community-based problem solving, and that is we're not going to wait for the federal government to come in and say, here's how you fix it. We're going to do it on our own terms. Communities are kind of coming together and galvanizing around the idea that if we're going to help ourselves, we have to help ourselves. And I love that. I love being a part of that. It's fun. It's fun to see the different personalities of towns. Every town has a collective personality, and it's different than the next one. Um, sometimes they don't jihad all the time. Sometimes they do. But it's fun to kind of try and create these little regional partnerships to help communities, um, you know, sort of try to revitalize. And, and, um, and there's evidence it's working out there and evidence that we've got some ways to go. But I like being a part of that. That's fun. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking around for a while because we've, we've started some important things. Um, one of the things that I do that maybe some other members don't is that we have um, a variety of advisory councils. One of the first ones I set up was a healthcare advisory council because, man, I hate talking about healthcare. It's not in my wheelhouse. I've been a healthcare consumer many, many times, usually against my will in an ambulance. But um, at any rate, you get the point. It's um, something that we all have to talk about and deal with. But I wasn't really, in my opinion, I, I didn't have a really good handle on exactly how you know healthcare policy works, how it should look, what's best. So set up an advisory council. That's important, and that's been an ongoing thing from day one. Met with them earlier this week. Um, have an ag advisory council. Interesting thing. Um, you know, we have livestock and we have row crop, and I don't bring them to the table at the same time. And I had people laugh about that, and it's because there's a fundamental, you know, you want to sell the corn high, they want to buy it low. That doesn't make for a friendly conversation. But when we have to, we come together and we join forces and, and we, we concentrate on the things that we can work together on. It's things like that that I enjoy building those coalitions. 
We started that. We started what we call a Delta Health Improvement Project, where we have a fellow um, fellowship program with our med school here at Arkansas State, the NYIT uh, DO school. We now have a fourth-year medical student working in our office while they are a student that is helping us develop rural health care policy on an ongoing basis. That's something we'll see now. This is not about serving Congressman Rick Crawford's office. This is about serving the first district of Arkansas. So if I'm not here next Congress, that continues. That's important because not only is it providing an educational opportunity for those students, it's providing a really important piece to the rural health care policy making, not just to me, but to whoever comes after me. That was set up to be for, for the people of the first district, not for the office of the congressman. And that's, that's important, and I'm proud of that, that we were able to accomplish that. So these are the kinds of things we want to continue and build coalitions and, and try to move the Delta forward. And not just the Delta, the Ozarks uh, in, in, this, in this district have some common problems, same issues that we're dealing with here, um, some, some issues that are different and unique to them, and, and some issues are unique to the Delta. But we also find that there's lots of opportunity for, to work together and collaboratively to address these issues. Tell the listeners out there something interesting about about yourself. What what do you enjoy doing when you're not uh, debating? I, one of the things I love the most. Uh, my kids are at a point now where they're they're active in doing things. Um, so I started coaching my son's football team about five or six years ago. Love that. Changed the way I watch football completely because he's a lineman, and so you're now watching the offensive line and all this kind of. So I've changed my whole perspective on how I watch football. I, I love coaching those kids he's now in the eighth grade and they you know last year was hard because he's now he's not in booster league anymore he's now playing in school and it's like you go get out of here we don't need you it's no more daddy ball and so it's been hard to sit up in the stands and watch but i really enjoy that my daughter who dances and and um, i go and i watch her and i try to coach her and it's a hard thing to coach your daughter <laughs> and how to dance and so <laughs> i've found ways to try and you know influence her in certain ways but most of the time she just tells me you know just let me do it dad I'm you don't really know what you're talking about kind of thing but I like spending time with them and doing that kind of stuff one of the things I find very cathartic is playing music I enjoy that a lot and um, so people are you know they kind of gig me about that a little bit it's like hey you know in this line of work you got to have a fallback right so when you're uh, really good at it <laughs> thanks I appreciate it well, so we do we do that. We tie that in with our annual chili cook-off. But we, we've had opportunity to play um, really kind of all over the country. We play in northeast Arkansas a lot, obviously, and most recently played the Cave City Watermelon Festival. Um, but we played at the RNC convention in Cleveland in 2016. So um, that was kind of interesting. We were invited up there to open for Leonard Skinner. And that was kind of like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so we get up there, and then the front man is, is it Donnie Van Zant now? Um, he kicked us out. He's, he, he's got a clause in his contract that says he controls the stage 100%. And he got up there, and apparently he was in a bad mood, and he said, I don't want anybody else on stage. So they came up and said, sorry. Um, you know, so we didn't get the chance to actually open for them, but we were, we were booked to, to open for Leonard Skinner. So That's I, a great story. I, I can brag about it. I, you, if you like that, i, I got to tell you this one. So I was trying to make it in the music business back in the early 90s, and I, and I opened for Shenandoah. And at the time, they were charting. I mean, they were a really hot act. 
and this was in a little town in upstate New York. I told you I went to the rodeos and stuff like this, and this happened to be at a rodeo in upstate New York. And um, so several years later, Cave City Watermelon Festival, about three years ago, they called me and said, hey, can you come open for Shenandoah? I'm like, yeah, I opened for them back in 1994, whenever it was. So I get over there, and we play our set, and here comes our lead singer, Marty Rabin. He's a super nice guy, and we're talking. I said, I said, you may not know this, you may not remember, but I opened for you back in 1994. He said, oh, you did? I said, yeah. He says, it's a little town up in upstate New York, Lake Luzerne. He goes, yeah, I know Lake Luzerne. He starts describing this venue in great detail, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I don't remember you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, you just killed me. So I told that story on stage, and everybody got a big kick out of it. Well, that was three years ago. Well, then this year, he remembered that this year. He's like, yeah, yeah, I remember you telling me about that. And then, then, of course, all he wanted to do was talk about politics, and he wanted to talk about the Alabama Senate race and all this other kind of stuff. So he was, he was really a nice guy, but it was funny that um, he remembered all that in great detail. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I really made a great impression. I'm like, no, not really. Not so much, huh? <laughs> not so much. So what's next for Rick Crawford? Uh, well, uh, you know, we're, we're on uh, August break and we'll go back to Washington September 9th and we spend an awful lot of time, you know, we set aside a week during August to do what we call our ag tour, but we always do ag. I mean, it just seems like there's not a week that goes by that we're not doing something agricultural. In fact, later today I'll meet with my ag council that I mentioned before and, um, the row crop council. We met with livestock council last week. Um, so we are two weeks ago. So it, there's something agricultural related to everything we do almost on a weekly basis when I'm home. But, um, you know, we've, we've been out and, and talked economic development and we've talked about health care and we do education and, and all these different things that we, that we engage the stakeholders on. So we'll just keep that up and uh, I, hopefully I'll be around a while to see a whole lot of these things through. Well, we appreciate your family service. I know your wife is on the Board of Trustees at Arkansas State, yep. so you have a family of servants. Mm -hmm. uh, we really appreciate your military service and especially what you're doing for the 1st District. And we really appreciate you coming and doing the seed cast. I know you're a busy guy. No, no, glad and, to do uh, it. appreciate you being here. I hope you have me back. Anytime you want to come. All right. That? <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rick. This is the Seedcast, brought to you by Armor Seed. Start strong. Plant armor. Plant armor.